Uh, this morning I'm going to talk to, well, I'm going to talk to everybody, but I want to make a, an emphasis toward our men this morning, talking to us about friendship, about relationship. We're in the passage this morning, a fairly co- uh, well-known passage about Jonathan and David and their friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18. While I'll speak to men quite a bit in this, almost everything I say is also applicable to women. Not everything. But you're discerning people, so you'll figure it out. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Hear then the word of God. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, and he would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. David went out, and he was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather again this morning into your presence. We gather before you to lift our hearts in worship, but our hearts desire to hear you speak to us. Our hearts desire for you to open our hearts that we might know the power of your word and be changed. We sit at your feet. Give us ears to hear. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Men are different creatures than women for the most part. Uh, We are wired differently. Men like to be, not that women don't in in many ways, but men sometimes are stubbornly self-sufficient. We like to be capable. We like to do things for ourselves. We don't want to ask directions. We don't want to read directions. We don't necessarily want help unless we absolutely, positively need it. We like to be strong. We like to be competent. We like to be thought competent. We like a good, firm handshake. At least most of us do. Look for that in each other. We want a firm handshake. We want to connect as men. And this isn't a bad thing. Uh, Masculinity is a good thing. We're pumped full of testosterone. God has designed us and wired us differently. And sometimes it is amazing just how different we are than women. There are many ways in which I live with my wife and after almost 24 years of marriage, there are many ways she's still... Her wiring and what she thinks and how she feels and how she goes about things is still as mysterious almost as it was the day we married. But that is true in reverse. She looks at me and as many times often is like, I don't even know you. You're like this alien creature. You know, I'm wired differently. I don't express myself in the same ways. I don't, you know, we are, we are distinct by design, by God's wiring. And Christianity has a masculine edge to it. There, there's room for, you know, God's design of the genders is very uh, on purpose, very purposeful. And Christianity does have a masculine edge to it. And this is good for, for us men because a lot of times we don't want to get too involved in something that's feminine. Uh, and you can look at us and the things that we're involved in, and we're, we're interested in, in boy things. You know, we're interested in men things. We're interested in masculine things. And Christianity does have a masculine edge to it, which is why the cu- culture often finds it offensive. 
God is our Father. He is a Father. Jesus is our brother. Right? He is our brother and our friend. He is our captain and our king. And God is a warrior. And there is this masculine edge to things. And there's this element, though, within American culture that rebels against it. And for the last 50 years has systematically tried to tear that down with gender-neutral language. And I think media campaign of the portrayal of men in, on TV and families and the likes. Systematically breaking it down. TV versions of manhood are just pathetic. You know, and I don't, I don't know how much watch TV, and, you know, but even over the last years I watched some of these shows, you catch them, whether it's the King of Queens or Everybody Loves Raymond, and these guys are the most inept, irresponsible, lying, deceiving, wimpy men I have ever seen in my life. And it really pains me at times the way the culture portrays and thinks about masculinity and manhood, and sometimes I feel like we need to be legitimized, it's okay. To be a man. To be masculine. And why do I say all this? I say all that because as we come to this passage this morning, and and the truth is this passage can be uncomfortable for some men. And that's part of the the reason is that the way culture is portrayed it and and the way that our gender identity can become confused uh, in, in our culture. We even use that language these days. And come to a passage like this, it should be in many ways very comfortable for a man that this is a this is a fine masculine passage. But American men, we tend to be loners. We tend to be isolated. We tend to keep our distance uh, for the most part. There's a book that came out in the early 1980s. It was called The Friendless American Male. It's a study of American masculinity. And it is unique even in the world. There are many ways that the American male, we have our own psyche in our own way, but the friendless American male, that we have a lot of acquaintances, we have a lot of co-workers, we have very few friends. We are close to very few other men. A lot of us like to stay on the fringe. I mean, we see this reflected in the church and we look at our small groups. I put them together for years and years and Jim and I, as we work together and he puts them together and we look and you'll see that on our list there's usually eight or nine women's small groups, one or two men's small groups. You look at our retreats, in our retreats you'll get 25 to 30 men and the women will easily get 50 to 120. You know, twice as many to four times as many going to retreats and four times as many in small groups. Why? Because they're relational. You get closer to people, to other men. But we stay away from too much vulnerability and we struggle to get close to anyone, and and yet we're confronted with this biblical passage, and I think with the whole biblical picture of friendship and masculine friendship that is spiritual and healthy and right, of brotherly love. You get these two guys, this picture of brotherly love, and for some guys it's an uncomfortable picture. We read in verse 1 that as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's a powerful language. You know, saying something, something powerful has taken place, something strong exists between these two men. The soul of David is knit with Jonathan, and vice versa. There's this immediate bond between these two, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. 
It's an expression of brotherly love, which the Bible speaks of quite a bit in the New Testament. That language is used of brotherly love. The love between brothers and sisters is one of the most powerful loves in the New Testament. There are several words for love, trying to capture different aspects of it that are all healthy and biblical. The agape love between God and man, and man and God, and this that has this this unconditional edge to it, and you have erotic love, eros, that the, the love between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman that is biblical and God-given. And then there's brotherly love, which can be just as powerful, and even as these guys express it, sometimes the bond that can exist between brothers can be really profound. The very definition of friend is someone who you love and trust. Someone who you love and trust. And for men, as often or not, we have a lot of acquaintances, but we have very few that we love and trust. Jonathan recognized in David a kindred spirit, and they began, as this passage shows, they begin a deep and lasting friendship. Verse 2, we see that Saul kept David with him at court. Says Saul took him that day and he wouldn't let him return home. Up until this point, he had been keeping sheep and playing music for the king and keeping sheep and coming back. And this whole thing with Goliath has changed everything. All right, David is now a warrior. God, Saul keeps him at court, keeps him, and, and David becomes close with the, the royal family. All right, he stays at court, he stays close to the royal family, becomes one of the captains and the leaders of his, his men, and he forms his friendship with Jonathan, his son, and, and, and then they make this covenant that we see in verse 3. Jonathan makes a covenant with David because he loved him. He loved him as his own soul. He loved him as a brother. And so he, he makes this covenant with him. In chapter 20, there's two different times when David refers to this covenant. He's communicating with Jonathan, and he talks about this covenant that they made together, and he refers to it as a covenant of the Lord. In another place he said that we have covenant that the Lord is between you and me forever. So this friendship, this covenant, it's spiritual, it's healthy, it's good, it's right. And it is something that they, that they formalize in covenant form. You cut a covenant, there's usually the shedding of blood and the, and the, and the making of vows, the swearing of loyalty. So they formalize this covenant together and says they definitely do it. It's a covenant of the Lord, and, it's, and that the Lord is between us. So it is a, it's, it's all about God, which I want us to see here as we press in. The content of this covenant is that they swore loyalty to each other as brothers. I would, you know, the thing that I've used before trying to capture this Old Testament covenant concept, and we might even think of blood brothers. Because this this crosses a lot of culture. It's in European culture and Asian culture and Native American culture. This this idea of blood brothers. Two men who come to love each other as brothers. They form a bond, a deep and lasting friendship. And sometime, you know, they involve the shedding of blood to bind themselves, to make a covenant to say, you know, we want this to last. And it's going to go beyond a lot of different circumstances. It says, no matter what the circumstances, I'm with you. I will be there for you. I will have your back. I will risk life and limb for you. I will look out for you and yours. And we see that in David and Jonathan's. That David looks out for Jonathan's children after him. And that the covenant is that, that they would be for each other, for you and for yours. 
And the expression of this covenant we see in verse 4 is that Jonathan strips himself of his robe and he gives it to David and then his armor and even his weaponry, his sword and his bow, the belt. He gives all of his stuff. He like strips it all down and gives it to, to David. You know, and there's a couple things going on here. I think it's both personal and political. I think it's, it's personal where David, where Jonathan, uh, you know, uh, equips David for his role you know, and gives him stuff. David comes from the countryside. He's a shepherd. You know him. He's got a staff and a sling. So Jonathan equips him, gives him a sword and armor and, and the things that he will need if he's going to stay at court and be a man of arms. But I think there's also something political going on here. There's a pledge of loyalty that is not only personal, but in this case also goes to a political level. In other words, Jonathan is the crown prince. His father is the king. In, in all normal succession and historical lines, Jonathan will follow his father, Saul, as king. But Jonathan here, as he takes off his royal robes and all of the marks of his office and gives them to David, I believe that he is very likely giving up his rights to succession and pledging his loyalty to David politically. One of the reasons I think that is just two chapters later. I don't think this made your bulletin, but you can note the reference. 1 Samuel 20, verse 31. He says this. As long, this is Saul talking to Jonathan. And, and as Saul has decided that David is a threat to him, and what you'll see over the next three or four chapters is Saul working hard to kill David. And Jonathan being David's friend is problematic in this whole thing. And, and Saul is actually killing anyone who aids and abets David. And David comes and there's a priest that helps him, gives him Goliath's sword and gives him bread and helps him, who doesn't even know that David's on the run from the king. But when Saul finds out, he has that whole priesthood eliminated. Anybody who helps David is <clears throat> Saul communicating with David here in chapter 20. And, and nothing has happened in between where God has revealed to Saul and Jonathan of his choice. But... Saul says to Jonathan, as long as the son of Jesse lives, neither you or your kingdom will be established. As long as David lives, your line, your succession to the throne is in danger. These guys are smart guys. Now, I don't know if, if the, the secret anointing of David that took place has been made known to these guys somehow, or if they're just smart enough. I think Saul is acute enough to know that God has said, I'm taking the kingdom from you, and I'm giving it to someone else. I'm giving it to a man after my own heart. And when Saul sees that God is with David, and that language is used at least twice following the Goliath thing, when Saul saw that the Lord is with David, and that the Lord had departed him, right? He could put two and two together. This is God's man. This is very likely the man after God's own heart, who God is with, who will take my place, in my son's place. I think Jonathan has some inclination of this. Definitely here, just within, within a short period of time, his father's verbalizing it to him. You understand this, right, son? You understand this guy that you're helping. You understand this friend of yours is going to take your throne. But Jonathan acknowledges God's leadership in the person of David. Jonathan is a man of faith. Jonathan loves God. 
And Jonathan loves God's kingdom. And if God said the throne isn't yours, he says, okay. And if God says the throne is David's and he will be king and he will be your captain, Jonathan says, take my stuff. I'm with you. I'm behind you. He recognizes God's leadership in the person of David. And he gets behind him. The Lord is with David and he knows that he is God's choice. And if it's God's choice, it's my choice. Loyalty to David, in a sense, is loyalty to God. Because this is what God is doing. This is the leadership God is raising up. And he gets behind God in his kingdom and not after his own claim to the throne. He's a godly man. And the foundation of their friendship, I want us to see the foundation of their friendship here is spiritual. What knits the souls of David and Jonathan together is exactly that, this shared faith. And the way that I read it, the way that these two men have been portrayed in the pages of Scripture, uh, the the one thing that strikes you about both of these guys is their, their strong faith in relationship with God. You see it in Jonathan's forays out against the Philistines, and we did this a few weeks ago where... Jonathan and his servant, he says, it just may be that the Lord will give them into our hands, for the Lord can save, whether it's by many or by few. You know, let's step out and let's go. And here's Jonathan's faith as he wants to strike a blow for Israel, and he steps out believing that God can save Israel. And if the battle will be won, it will be by God's power and God's intervention. And so he says to his man, let's go, let's try this thing, let's step out there. And then he sees David show up on the field, right? What does David do? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why is nobody standing out there? Why is this guy allowed to defy the armies of God and in so doing defy the God of the armies of Israel? Why? And then he steps out and says, I'll do it. The God who who allowed me to defeat a lion and a bear, this God is going to give him into my hands. And Jonathan sees him. I think what Jonathan sees is a man after his own heart. What Jonathan sees is a man who shares a faith like his. A man who loves God, believes in God, trusts in God, risks for God, loves his kingdom, and steps out there. It's not built around shared interests and hobbies, unless you consider killing Philistines a hobby. It's not around hunting or hiking. It's not around sports teams or gaming. Those are all fine things to form friendships around. And and they have their place. But I I believe that deep faith in God is what binds these two men together. You have two men after God's own heart. And that's why David's heart goes out to him. It's like, I love this guy. (laughs) I love this guy. You know, his faith and his passion for God's kingdom. They have the same relationship with God. Kindred spirits sharing a similar passion for spiritual things. And so Jonathan locking arms with David, I believe, and I believe we should see, has everything to do with God and his kingdom. I believe that's what's going on here. These two men and their bond, despite all the political intrigue and Saul trying to kill David and the wars with the Philistines and all that's going on, you've got two men who are trying to be faithful to what God is doing in Israel. And they link arms. Scripture encourages us to seek this kind of friendship. I believe the Scripture encourages us to link arms with kindred spirits. 
And I believe that it should be spiritual, that it should have everything to do with God and with His kingdom. Other kinds of friendship are fine. The friendships we form around work, the friendships we form around hobbies, that's all good and well. You know, gaming, hunting, hiking, those things are good, and they're good ways to build and to nurture friendship. But I believe that the core of it, biblically, just like everything, is ultimately spiritual. And the richest and the deepest friendships pointed at in Scripture are spiritual. 2 Timothy 2.22 is the last thing there under your second point, your bulletin. Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him, flee your youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Right, Timothy, he's a young man of God. This is, this is what you ought to be about. Flee and pursue. Flee your youthful passions and the sin and your temptations. Flee your old way of life. Flee all that garbage and pursue actively. Seriously, pursue, pursue what? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. He says, don't do it alone. Do it with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Kindred spirits. Men who love the kingdom like you do, who love righteousness like you do, who love faith and love and peace like you do. You do. Men who have a similar passion for God and for His kingdom and for His righteousness. Find those men or ladies. Find those ladies and pursue together. Alongside, he says. right With. Fight the good fight along with these people. Eugene Peterson, talking about friendship. Eugene Peterson um, has written quite a lot on spiritual theology and the theology of pastoring and the spiritual life he wrote and he says friendship is 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 a much underestimated aspect of our spirituality but it is every bit as significant as prayer and as fasting that's a strong statement because prayer and fasting are pretty core or at least in our practice prayer is fasting may ought to be (laughs) truth be told but to, to, to lay spiritual friendship alongside of prayer is a significant statement. And I think he's on to something, and I think there's something true in what he is saying. The spiritual, he's saying spiritual friendship is important to spiritual growth and service. And I believe that's absolutely true. Spiritual friendship is important to spiritual growth. Philippians chapter 2 is there in your bulletin under the third point, friendship Paul, again, writing to the church at Philippi, he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Here's what I think about Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And brothers, I'll just say, how many people in your life can you say that? If you were writing about them, you would say, I'm sending to you Bill, my brother, my fellow worker, my co-laborer, my fellow soldier. We're connected to guys like that at all? You know, in ministry and spiritual growth and the pursuit of spiritual things, are there people like that in our life? I mean, it's, it's this, th- these are the strongest masculine bonds possible. This strikes where men live. Brothers, co-workers, because men work. I mean, that's what we do, right? We work, we labor, we do stuff. We want to fix it. A woman is feeling the problem and we are thinking of strategies to do the work to fix it. Because that's what we do. We labor. You know, we meet and we do work days and we, we labor together. And soldiers, are there any stronger bonds that are, that are formed under fire, so to speak? 
So he says, brother, my brother, we're joined by the bonds of blood and family. Powerful bonds, co-worker, men who share work together, pursue the same goals, build the same kingdom. And fellow soldier, brothers in arms, we fight the same battles, we have the same enemies, I got your back. And so we, we share in a Christian warfare, we fight the good fight of faith together. What brings us together in all of this, whether it's Jonathan and David, I believe it's there, or these New Testament pictures of, of Paul that are given these, these bonds, what brings us together is that we form ranks behind Christ. Right? And that's what he's doing. He's trying to, to link our arms together behind Christ. Brothers and sisters, right? Co-laborers. Brothers and sisters in arms. Following Christ. There it is, Philippians 1.27. Paul writes this to the same Philippian church. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, how are we going to do that? Because who, who doesn't want that as a believer? For your life to be... To be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says, do it standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. All right, one spirit, one mind, come together for, for the faith of the gospel. He says, come together. One mind, one heart, one spirit, side by side, pursuing spiritual maturity. Pursuing the growth and the work and the labor within God's kingdom. Let me say this. I don't think that men will connect together with other men in the church until we get serious about spiritual growth. Generally, we'll connect with men over hobbies and games and sports and those things that we do. We'll connect with men. We work with other men. They're, it's not that they're out, not out there, but, but, but men often don't connect with other men in the church until something is clicked. And they've gotten serious about spiritual growth. Because when you want to grow spiritually, it's really hard to do by yourself. It's really hard to do out there alone. And I see it again and again. This connection is not missed until they want to grow spiritually. And then they begin to seek out brothers in arms. The like mind, kindred spirits. I need, I need somebody else's passion up against which I can light mine, right? Someone to walk alongside, you know, spiritual growth and Christian usefulness require connection. And men need connection to other men. Let me point out just quickly two characteristics and benefits of friendship that the Bible gives us. It is at the core of this kind of connection. And there's two of them, I would say, that, that are steadfast and sacrificial and they're sanctifying. They're steadfast and sacrificial, and they're sanctifying. When men come together over spiritual purposes, for spiritual reasons, steadfast and and sacrificial, having someone at your back, being there when someone needs you. Proverbs 17, 17, there in your bulletin under the third point. He says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's why we have brothers, he says. Brothers are born for adversity. That's why we have them. And spiritually speaking, I think, you know, the friend loves at all times. The all times is in adversities. And a friend and a brother can be the same thing. Right? A friend and a brother, all times and in adversity. That's when we need each other. Ecclesiastes 4, there in your bulletin next. He says, two are better than one. Two have a good reward for their toil. 
That's true spiritually. That's why when we get serious about spiritual growth, well, the truth is that our reward, the benefits come together when, when there are two bound, right? Two are better than one for that kind of pursuit. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And I see it again and again. See it again and again. Many people stay disconnected. And they don't realize the value of the connection that the Bible describes in the, in the Christian ranks. What the Bible describes is what it means to pursue these things together. It's not valued. And people who stay disconnected, and, 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 it, and it really isn't missed, or it really isn't, is it really isn't painful until somebody stumbles. And all of a sudden you realize, no one's calling. No one's coming by. No one's hunting me down. No one is, no one is offering me the hand to get up. Where is everybody? connection. Woe to the one who is alone when he falls. Don't be alone. You don't know when the fall comes. When we all stumble and we all go through, whether it's hardship, whether it's spiritually and and we're backsliding or other kinds of trials in our lives at home and work in a thousand different ways. Woe to the one who is alone when he falls. There, Jonathan's friendship with David literally saves his life at least twice. Literally saves his life at least twice. And in chapter 23, we read this. It's, uh, this didn't make your bulletin either. 1 Samuel 23, 16. It says this. Jo- Jonathan rose and he went to David. And, t- and by chapter 23, Saul has already eliminated an entire priesthood. He's already killed anybody that stands between him and David. Anybody that harbors or abets or aids David, Saul is, is eliminating. Right? He's cleaning house to protect his throne and his succession. And in chapter 23, we're told this, Jonathan rose and he went to David. And he strengthened his hand in God. Brother loves at all times. Right? A brother is born for adversity. Risking life and limb, he'll be there when you need him. And when David is falls, when David is in, in the midst of his trials, Jonathan comes to him. And I know that the relationship is spiritual again, that this friendship is around God. He says he strengthens his hand in God. He comes and gives him spiritual encouragement, strengthens him in the purposes of God, the love of God, the calling of God, the choosing of God, the purposes of God. He comes alongside and strengthens his hand in God to endure what he must endure. He walks with him. Steadfast and sacrificial, and it's sanctifying. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. What kind of sharp? What does it mean to be sharp? To be a sharp man. I can tell you right now, right here in the heart of Ecclesiastes, he's talking spiritual, right? He sharpens you spiritually as a man of God, as a, as a, as a spiritually mature and maturing person. You, so the question for me as I am looking at this passage with David and Jonathan and thinking about my friendships and thinking about where I am and where I want to be, and, you know, we could always do this better, and we all have varying levels of friendship, but there is something here that should tug at our hearts to say, do we have men in our, do you have men, for you, do you have a man in, men in your life that sharpen you spiritually? 
Right? Do you have men in your life that sharpen you spiritually? And if not, why not? Why, why haven't we sought out? Why haven't we linked arms? Why haven't we done this pursuing together? Iron sharpens iron, and so it is. One man sharpens another. Spiritual growth, it's hard to happen alone. In fact, usually spiritual regression happens alone. And iron sharpens iron when they're together. So what am I saying? I'm saying, men, step out of isolation. Pursue connection. Pursue spiritual growth. And so pursue connection with other men. And women, I would say, not only for you to do the same thing, because I think the principles underlying this are, are the same for women. It will feel different and be applied different in some ways. But it's the same for you. Right? But everybody knows connection for women is much easier. It's much more natural. It happens more But if it isn't for you, I'd encourage you to do the same. But I'd not only encourage you to do it for yourselves, I would also say this to you. Give your men freedom to be masculine. Give your men freedom to pursue other men. To pursue them in in playing and hanging out because those are the kind of things that break the barriers. But also to serve and to retreat and to enter into discipleship, into small groups, let them be with other men. The demands of work and the demands of family deplete can leave a man depleted and empty, and defenseless. Sometimes we need Jonathan to come and strengthen us in the hand of God. Let me close by just saying that Jesus is offered to us in Scripture as the perfect friend for sinners. Right? Jesus is the ultimate friend. As we describe friendship, whether it's between men or women, we, all, we know the Scripture says Jesus is that ultimate friend. The passage everyone knows The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, praise God. Praise God. You know, he got a bad rep. You know, it's it's guilty by association. He wasn't a glutton, and he wasn't a drunkard, but he hung out with sinners. He loved sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He is the ultimate friend. To love at all times. To you sacrificial and steadfast and sanctifying as we've been talking about, right? Another passage everyone knows in John 15. Greater love is no one than this. And someone should lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. I mean, imagine that. What we've been talking about, right? Now let's think about Jesus. And Jesus says, and you are my friends. Right? You are my friends. A friend is born for adversity. He's a friend at all times. His iron sharpens iron. Greater love, no greater love that is there than this. And he says, no longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you my friends. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. This is what we see Jonathan doing with David. And we get a picture of it in human terms. And ultimately, this is what Jesus does for us. I live by faith in the Son of God because He loves me and He gave Himself for me. Our faith and our devotion and our loyalty to Christ are a response to one who has first loved us, who was first loyal in a sense to us. The Bible tells us that Christianity consists, true Christianity In your life, as we've talked about friendship and hearts and souls being knit together and loving 
another that Christianity consists of devotion and loyalty to a person. Whatever else you hear out there, however else it is portrayed out there as a list of rules. I don't want to become a Christian because you've got all these rules. You know, I don't want to become a Christian or because, you know, you know, the institutional church has you know, got problems with it. Or I, you know, I don't think, you know, and they have all these things. There's a lot of confusion around Christianity is devotion and loyalty to a person. And everything else flows out of that. I love the church because Jesus loves the church. I say, you know, there's some reason that's, you know, where Jonathan comes by and strengthens your hand and God's calling and purposes, you know, and you stay in your love for the church. Why? Because it's the bride of Christ. Devotion and loyalty to a person. And so becoming a Christian is very much like verse 1. Where the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That can describe a person coming to Christ. Right? The soul of a person is knit together with the soul of Jesus because he loves him. And so we take off everything and we covenant together. Jesus describes as we do communion every month and we... You know, that this blood is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant that Jonathan and David make. And there's this, this, you have to understand the personal loyalty of it. He makes a new covenant in his own blood. We can only give our love and our devotion and our loyalty to each other if we first give them to Christ. And then we learn to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind. Side by side, laboring in the gospel and in the kingdom.